Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me to Paul's first epistle to the Thessalonians. Chapter 5 will be in verses 19 through 22 this morning. It is such a blessing to gather in worship to Christ our King, to give praise to the one who rules and reigns over the affairs of men, who sees the end from the beginning. Indeed, who is man that he is mindful of us? Does that not frame our awe and our humility that we approach our gathering with this morning with exceeding joy? Well, I confess, actually, I'm a, a little sad this week that we were so spooled up for our season of eschatology, having just launched into Mark 13 last week. And I pray it was a blessing for you and that you remain excited for the wonderful treasures that we will mine in the coming weeks as we look back toward our time in Mark. Still, anyone who's attended Harrison Hills for any amount of time knows that a topical sermon is a, a rare thing here indeed, like the the sighting of a dodo bird. However, there is a time and a place for such messages, whether it be a national event or a major happening in the local body or simply a circumstance that, that calls for it. We take the time to address the world events and divine providence around us when the welfare of the flock requires it or if a unique opportunity to learn and grow is sovereignly placed before us. And I must confess to my church family that my heart has been conflicted and heavy this week. As the week has gone on, my burden has grown heavier, knowing that this message was to be a matter of obedience for me as both your pastor and under-shepherd. You know, the reformer Martin Luther, who of course was an instrument God used mightily in the first reformation of the church, he had many issues to contend with, many battle lines to defend. But in the midst of those many battles raging, he said this, quote, If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the word of God, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing him. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefront besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. Close quote. So these are challenging topics where the forewarned and forearmed may have worn their steel toe boots to church that morning, knowing that there will certainly be some toes stepped on. The great J.C. Ryle considered these challenges when he wrote that, quote, controversy is an odious thing, but there are days when it is a positive duty. Peace is an excellent thing, but like gold, it may be bought too dear. Unity is a mighty blessing, but it is worthless if it is purchased at the cost of truth, close quote. So as unpopular as it may be, as Christians, we should become quite comfortable being in the minority, of holding the minority view. And while we should never expect the world to applaud us, the truth is, history has shown that the most fiercest, the, the most effective attacks and challenges most often come from those naming the name of Christ. 
not from those outside of it. It is certainly the same today. And yet in a world that no longer, that's no longer post-Christian but is decidedly anti-Christian, anytime we find ourselves in the majority of a movement, if we find ourselves being applauded by the world or you find yourself in league with the latest thing, we should take a pause, take stock as a fish out of water. As we move further and further into living in and amongst a culture that is openly hostile toward biblical Christianity, knowing that we also have an enemy of the church and of our very soul who seeks to sow chaos and confusion in the body as well as he can, who seeks like a roaring lion to destroy and to deceive. These challenges and realities of the days in which we live have only served to heighten and accentuate one of the greatest weaknesses in the American church. And throughout their lives, many men in prominent places of leadership within what we would call conservative, orthodox, theological circles have all been asked at one time or another this very question. What is the greatest weakness in the American church? Now, while all these big names that we would all know all had their own angle and thoughts on it, they all zeroed in on the same general answer. The greatest danger to the American church is her utter lack of discernment. The corporate body of Christ cannot distinguish between that which is false and that which is true. One well-known pastor and theologian, he classified the American church as, quote, having a defective immune system, of having a case of spiritual AIDS, it does not have the ability to fight error because it doesn't know the truth. It doesn't have enough truth antibodies to fight off the error. And the truth as a whole is blissfully ignorant. And as a consequence, it's easily victimized by that error. Now, lest you think that the pulpit is casting stones, the true fault originates with the pulpits. We stop feeding the sheep in a desire to attract the goats. Pastors change the menu to be appetizing to the world. Again, J.C. Ryle writing, quote, The pulpit, platform, and pamphlet hucksters have wantonly lowered the standard of divine holiness and so adulterated the gospel in order to make it palatable to the carnal mind. Close quote. And all the while the sheep languish without nourishment, their knowledge of the Bible growing more shallow as the years progress, professing bumper sticker theology at best, and thus error finds a most comfortable home from the pulpits to the pews. People embrace experiences over exposition, sensations over sola scriptura, and feelings over fidelity. People will drive for miles to go feel something. Why? Because they don't know that God already has a revealed, recorded plan to revive them and to take care of them, to feed them and provide for them. And how would they know? For many, their own church did not feed them, driving them to anxious pursuit of that which can satisfy. Yes, God desires to revive his children. But how? Where? When? What does the Bible say? Only a question that really matters. And all these we're going to touch on. Now, the fifth chapter of Thessalonians, it looks like our 
projectors not out, as providence would have it, begins speaking about the last days. And how fitting in our current series through Mark, Paul is framing his exhortation to the church in Thessalonica in view of Christ's coming. As we said last week, how then shall we live? And thus speaking of the day of the Lord in the beginning of chapter 5, now in that light, now in view of his coming, Paul closes this epistle with specific admonishments and instructions for the church. Beginning with wonderful exhortations, as you'll see, saying what? Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks, be patient, help the weak, seek after that which is good. What wonderful water for the soul. Yet you'll notice in your Bibles as Paul begins his exhortations in verse 12 of chapter 5, it's kind of a do-do list, right? Do these things. So we can kind of lump those together in our mind for categories. But now as we arrive at verse 19, we come to a do not. Now that should shift something in the reader's mind. Paul is making a move. And it's this very move that captures our text today. So look with me as Paul exhorts the church, as Paul exhorts you and I today, verses 19 through 22, 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 22, Paul writes, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but examine all things, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every evil, every form of evil. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you have gone before us in your spirit, in your word, in your providence. Lord, we ask now that hearts would be prepared for what you would have for us. We ask that hearts would be soft and tender. We ask in your sovereignty that those who need to hear will hear, as only you can do. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, in Acts 2, you'll recall that we observe Pentecost. We observe the coming and the promised outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the helper, the paraclete, promised by Christ that would come. It was immediately after this outpouring in Acts 2 that we witnessed the first fruits of the work of the Holy Spirit having truly been poured out. One of the many roles of the Holy Spirit that he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, Jesus tells us. So thus, having been filled with the Spirit, Peter took his stand with the eleven. He raised his voice and he called for repentance from all who heard. Now, we're not witnessing some side act of Pentecost in Peter's sermon. Peter's sermon was the main act. It's not the mighty rushing wind. It's not the tongues of fire. It's not speaking in other dialects. All those things happened. But to what end? So that what could be done? The very first act with the Holy Spirit, having poured out on those gathered, was what? It was for Peter to go and preach a barn burner that laid them down flat. Peter hit them with so much doctrine and theology that they were stunned. They were shell-shocked. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? That day, 3,000 were born again. 
Behold the work of the Spirit. Behold the chosen vehicle that the Holy Spirit chose to crush men's hearts that day. It wasn't a sing-song. It wasn't some prayer time with sharing testimonies. The very first act of Peter, having had the actual Holy Spirit poured out on him, was to preach these people into the ground. Using doctrine and theology to bring a knowledge of sin, righteousness, and judgment. As we look at God's plan to revive his people in Lanesville 2023, as we look at the accompanying lack of discernment that plagues the body of Christ like a cancer, there is no finer place to begin than with the Holy Spirit. There is no more misunderstood member of the Trinity than the Holy Spirit. Churches today either overemphasize him or he seems absent altogether from the teaching and preaching. Both are bred from ignorance of the written word. Now, of course, we could do a hundred-part series on the function and the role of the Holy Spirit in the church age, and we don't have time to cover even a fraction of them, but we should know what the role of the Holy Spirit is. Why? Why? Because of our first verse, verse 19. Verse 19, do not quench the Spirit. If we are commanded to not quench something, ought we to know what it is we're not to quench? Or more accurately, who it is that we are not to quench. Nowhere does the lack of discernment, confusion, and chaos reign stronger in the church than in our understanding of the Holy Spirit. Now to quench something in scripture, it very simply means to stifle, to retard, or to extinguish. So what exactly is it that we are not to stifle or retard? Well, Paul is speaking to believers here in Thessalonica. So our question must be, what is the role of the Holy Spirit in believers that we are not to hinder? Well, for a new believer, after he has regenerated you, after he's taken up residency in you, then he begins to transform your spiritual affections. He places you in a body of believers. He seals you for eternity. He sanctifies you in your growth. He gives you gifts for spiritual service. He frees you from habitual sin. He illuminates the word of God to you. He testifies to you that you're a child of God. He causes you to walk in his statutes. He guides you in God's will. He comforts you. He intercedes for you. The spirit of God imparts life. He reveals truth. He fosters holiness. He supplies power. He enables you to bear fruit. But all of those things... Every believer in here can testify that while they are a growing reality in their lives, none of these are done to completion or to perfection. Amen? They are a process of sanctification. They're a process of growth in your Christian life. And Paul is saying, don't stifle that. That work of the Spirit in the Christian life, don't hinder that. If the work of the Spirit is compared to a fire, which it it often is, don't put it out. Don't throw water on it. That is the work of the Holy Spirit in the believer that we are not to stifle. Discernment check. What does the Holy Spirit not do in the life of the Christian? Does the Scripture show the Holy Spirit giving you a tingle up your back? No. 
The scriptures show that he causes believers to act in chaotic and odd ways, to fall on the floor or speak in unintelligible gibberish. No. Does scripture show the Holy Spirit coming in waves or as a feeling or as a presence? No. Open Bibles, beloved. Open Bibles. The Holy Spirit does not turn those who are sealed for redemption into spiritual junkies. Chasing after the next spiritual high or the next experience or the next revival. Driving across the country to feel the presence of God. History shows us that they will crash and burn. Why? Because that's not the ministry of the Holy Spirit. What we see today in many churches and many so-called revivals far more resemble Eastern mysticism and New Age cult practices than anything to do with the third person of the Trinity and what Scripture reveals of his attributes and activities. We have a generation of young people who are learning to interpret Scripture by their experiences instead of understanding their experiences in light of Scripture. This is but one reason why discernment is so abysmal and why the flock and why they flock to the next experience. Because it's those very experiences, those feelings that are forming their view of Christianity and of Scripture, which of course is backwards. Do not quench the spirit. Along with personal sin, there is no quicker way to do that than to blaspheme the spirit giving him attributes of your own making, assigning to him activities that are contrary to his revealed nature and will, fashioning a Holy Spirit after your own desire to feed, your own design to feed your desire to feel revived. As we will see, dear Christian, God has a plan for that. We need not chase after the wind. Paul goes on in verse 20, our second do not, do not despise prophecies. What does that mean? Discernment check. What does prophecies mean? Prophetia. Now this can either mean the spoken or the written word. Right, when Peter is speaking about the writing of scripture in 2 Peter 1 verse 20, it reads, but I know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. We see that the written word. John refers to the written word in Revelation as prophecy. So when we see the word prophecies, we must deal with both the written and the spoken. We have to deal with them both. So do not despise first the written word, the written prophecy. Right? To despise, that means to look down upon it, to treat it with contempt. Do we see that in today's churches? Do we see that in today's meetings and revivals? Anytime the word is not front and center, we are treating it with contempt. How about the spoken word? Well, if we look to the verb form, this is the action part of the word. Of course, I like that, right? This is profituo, which means to speak or proclaim publicly. Now, that comes in two garden varieties as well, right? You have the revelatory Prophetuo, right? During the apostolic age, this was God giving new revelation for the purpose of recording scripture, right? Or speaking to a certain people or situation. And then you have non-revelatory prophetuo. 
That's what you're hearing right now. (laughs) The proclamation to you of God's previously revealed word. We are speaking, we're prophesying, we're proclaiming it publicly. And what other word for speaking and proclaiming publicly do we know of? Preaching, right? It is in this that the power of God has been placed. And Paul writes to the church at Corinth, For the word of the cross, the preaching of the cross, is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Do we grasp that? If you are calling out for the power of God, you're crying out for the preached word of God. Not a zap from heaven with goosebumps. The power of God to change lives, to revive his people, the engine, the mechanic of it, is in the preached word. The primary means of God's plan to revive a weary saint, to captivate a young heart, to restore and refresh, to convict and pierce the heart, is the preached word of God. It does not exist outside of that. If this be the case, if this be the primary means by which God will convict and captivate and restore and refresh and revive his people, if the preaching of the word is the power of God, then how do we explain the woeful condition of the church? It tells us that we clearly have a crisis of preaching in the body. A reformation is needed Now, we have demoted, demeaned, and denigrated the very power of God. We have despised the prophetic utterance. We have held in low esteem the written and preached word. We have quenched the spirit. And these young people, they came to us hungry. And we fed them garbage. Good question. Spoken from the mouths of babes. Young people, new believers are being driven into the arms of another lover because they are not experiencing the true power of God. They are running here and there trying to find it. Wherever it's advertised, chasing it down anywhere, they see that God is on the move. Ginning up revivals, desperate for something, anything. Discernment is so low, they don't know the difference. And the high wears off, the music marathon ends, the Holy Spirit flies away, and they'll call it a revival. With the preached word of God, the power of God, nowhere to be found. And indeed, verses 19 and 20, they are well joined at the hip. If we do one, we do the other. If we don't do one, we don't do the other. If we despise the written and preached word, you will quench the spirit. If we prize and esteem the written and preached word, we will be filled, growing as God intended us to, all the faculties of the spirit at work in our lives. Yet while verses 19 and 20 are so beautifully intermingled, both producing from the other, both acting in concert with the other, as one rises, the other rises, the working of the spirit in someone's life with the prizing of the preached and written word. It's a beautiful symmetry. But we now come upon a hinge. 
We come upon a, a break, a clause, a caveat. Remember, do not do what do not. Do not do not. And now verses 21 and 22, but do. But do. Do what? Notice our pattern here. No, no. Now, yes, yes. So what's our first yes? But examine all things. Other translations say examine everything carefully. Oh, boy. Are we in trouble or are we in trouble? We see here, saints, a clarion call for discernment. We see that discernment is not an option for the believer. This is a command. We are commanded as Christians to examine everything carefully. What does that mean? Well, to examine something really means to test for authenticity. It can be applied back to both of our first two no's. As we are walking down the road in the school of Christ, in the school of sanctification, as we're walking in the Spirit, and the Spirit is working in us, we have a heart that is not to be trusted, don't we? We have an enemy that is prowling around. All these will seek to derail and quench the Spirit. Things will come along to quench that move. We will have experiences and feelings, attitudes, emotions, desires, which are not bad things. We were made to have these, but they are fallen. Thus, we are called to cross-examine those to be in line with the fruit of the Spirit in our life. I don't just have this emotion or idea or desire unchecked. Examine everything. Everything includes yourself. That experience you had, examine it. Your heart will deceive you. Don't follow your heart. That leads to great error. Cast every thought, every imagination, every desire, every feeling, every emotion, every experience under the scrutinizing eye of God's Word. If we do not examine everything in the light of Scripture, as deception slowly seeps in, sin will arise, and the work of the Spirit will be quenched in our life. How about our examination of everything to our second no? Concerning the prophetic word, the preached word, the written word, the proclaimed word. Oh, we could camp here for a good long while. Well, there's so much that could be explored in this command and exhortation, but I'm reminded of a well-loved quote by the Prince of Preachers. He wrote, quote, Discernment is not simply a matter of telling the difference between what is right and what is wrong. Rather, it is the difference between right and almost right. Satan comes as an angel of light, not with horns and a pitchfork. He loves to counterfeit. And it's not 50-50 that's always easy to sniff out. Rat poison is made up of 99% sugar and 1% poison. 99% yum-yum, 1% dead. Guess which number wins when they partake? That 1% gets them every time. It's not easy to catch the 1%. The lazy man or woman won't catch the 1%. One needs to do what? Examine everything carefully. Paul exhorted the church at Ephesus, We are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. The command is to wake up, grow up, and be sober, church. Satan favors sleights of hand so commonly surround once again 
the third person of the Holy Spirit, of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. He really seems to delight in this playground. On one side, we have a cesspool. We're watching the youth snatched up into false teaching and false worship that emphasize the supposed moving of the Holy Spirit and purported signs and wonders. So we have this veritable sewer on one side, and sadly we have a vacuum on the other. Churches who barely mention the third person of the Trinity, they rarely teach on the Holy Spirit. That gives fertile ground to deception as well. Case in point, as we highlight discernment in the church, as you talk about luring of young people, as you know, these false teachers, these false movements, they positively dominate the Christian music industry, almost lock, stock, and barrel. Beloved, Paul exhorts us in Romans 16, 17 to mark the ones that do these things. Call them out by name. Let others know so they may avoid error. Paul is not unloving. If the person is unrepentant of their deceit or their heresy or their false teaching, we are to mark that person. Name them and avoid them. What does that make some people uncomfortable? Whew. We mentioned the Christian music industry, the Christian worship industry. It is dominated by false teachers and false doctrine. Name them. Bethel music, Jesus culture, elevation music, worship, Hillsong. Mark these and avoid. They teach a false gospel. They hook you with catchy music. Orthodox sounding lyrics, but that's just the opening of the wormhole that's being introduced to their entire movement. And the undiscerning, down they go. Now most in here either know someone they have lost to these movements or they've come out of them already yourself. The gloves must come off. Discernment must return to the body. And fair warning, if you do examine everything carefully, if you do examine every doctrine carefully, if you examine the preached and written word carefully, there's a slew of names waiting for you, I assure you. Pharisee, legalist, or the worst, uncool. I'm guilty there. Another case in point this week, I watched about 10 interviews, watched numerous clips on the news, on YouTube, from people that attended or rather large extended gathering over in Kentucky recently that was very well publicized. And as I watched these young people, college-age men and women mostly, describe their experience, there was one absolute consistent theme, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. First interview, oh, the Holy Spirit. Second interview, the Spirit was there. You could feel it. Third interview, it was such a move of the Spirit. Fourth interview, man, just waves of the Spirit. Fifth interview, spent time with the Holy Spirit. Sixth interview, all about the Spirit. On and on and on. Now, that probably could have been replicated 18,000 times, if I had to guess. But what's the problem with that? Any, any red flags there? What should happen to your discernment antennas if you hear about an event where the takeaway is the Holy Spirit? What does Scripture say is the role of the Holy Spirit? Who does the Holy Spirit lift up and point to? Listen to the words of Jesus. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. 
Again, Jesus. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative. But whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me. For he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. He will bear witness about me. He will glorify me. The Trinitarian role of the Holy Spirit is to point to Christ. It is to magnify Christ. If you hear it's the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that's the first warning that it's not the Holy Spirit at work. When the Holy Spirit is present and working, it is only the person and work of Jesus Christ that is lifted up. The Holy Spirit is no less God in the Trinity. We talked about this in adult Sunday school today. He is equal in every single regard. But his role is to lift up the Son. The Holy Spirit never says, here I am, come bask in me. Open Bible, saints. He has one point, one aim in his Trinitarian role. That is to lift up and magnify the person of Christ. If Christ is not present, lifted up, primary, central, all-encompassing, the star of the show, the preeminent, then the Holy Spirit has nothing to do with what you're doing. Full stop. The Holy Spirit does not magnify himself. He magnifies Christ. Period. Dot. So if he doesn't magnify himself, but he points and guides you exclusively to Christ, how did you walk away after 10 hours of your hands raised, consumed with the Holy Spirit, and not Christ. If the Holy Spirit was actually at work, it would not be the Holy Spirit at the forefront of your mind. Do you get that? The truest evidence of the Holy Spirit is the preaching and the pointing to Christ. When men in the New Testament were said to be filled with the Spirit, what happened? Well, there's seven times, and I won't give you all seven. You'll be happy to know. We see Zacharias first. He spoke forth a powerful blessing, thanking God. Peter then, what did he do? He burned down the barn at Pentecost, right? Calling for repentance, pointing to Christ, to Christ. And then Peter again in Acts 4. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, what does he do? Said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we're on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel but that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands before you in good health. He is the stone, here comes Jesus, that was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. And there is no other name given under heaven that he has been given among men by which we must be saved. That's the Holy Spirit present. That's the filling of the Spirit. Look who the star of the show is. And we know that by the preaching that follows every single time. That's why a Sunday morning service isn't just singing. We could have 10,000 people here come and sing for 20 days straight. I bet the news would even come and cover us. What could possibly be wrong with that? What could possibly be wrong with that? Do you know how many people raise their hands in worship every Sunday to a Jesus of their own making? To a Jesus that they have fashioned in their minds. 
Sure, they call him Jesus. Makes it a lot more convenient, a lot easier. But if asked to describe him, it doesn't match the person and the nature and the attributes of Jesus revealed in Scripture. Even so, they praise him. The only way we know if they are worshiping the Christ of Scripture and not a figment of their imagination is by examining their doctrine. And if you have no preaching, how can you examine the doctrine? You can't. It's a free-for-all with the name of Jesus being prostituted and used. The demonstration of the filling and the power of the Spirit given to us in Scripture in every instance is to magnify Christ, to preach Him boldly. The purpose of the Spirit of God is to lead us to Christ. If you do not see that, be discerning. Test every spirit. Historic, extraordinary moves of God have always, always been led by faithful, powerful preaching. Do not quench the spirit, whether by sin, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, stifling our growth in Christ. Do not quench it by blaspheming the spirit, attributing actions to him that violate his nature. Do not despise prophecies, the written, spoken, and preached word. Hold them in high esteem. If we don't do that, then we will quench the Spirit because it is through that means that he has imputed his power. Right? But examine all things. Examine all carefully. We're commanded to be discerning. Beloved, the Christian life is not a lazy life. We cannot just throw our hands up in the air to a Jesus and call it good. Who is he? We must know him rightly if we're to worship him rightly. And when you've done this, beloved, when you've given place in your heart and life to all that Scripture says the Spirit does in the life of the believer, when you've devoured the Word and you've esteemed it highly, now you know the Jesus you're looking for. You may know him and worship him freely and in spirit and in truth. Not through a feeling or a sensation, but concretely know him through his word. And now you may examine all things slowly, carefully, diligently, warning and helping others. And when you have found that which is good, look at our text. Hold fast to it. Cling to it. Make it your own. Hold on to it for precious, dear life. Prize it in your heart. The sheep hear the voice of the shepherd. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And the result, the outflowing of walking in all these is a holy life a life well-pleasing to the Lord. You will bring life and light to all around you as you radiate the true sun. I mean, you may have noticed our title for the message today, Revival Through Reformation. Saints of God, beloved of God, I know you desire revival for yourself. I know you desire to see your family come to Christ. 
I know you desire for salvation to grip and take hold in large numbers. Young people, I know you want to experience Christ. Let me encourage you. God has a place for you to be revived. God's master plan for you as a Christian is the local church. God's design for the extraordinary in your life is the ordinary. You are to be lifted up and revived through the ordinary means of grace. By sitting under solid exposition of the word, by engaging in worship that's now informed by the word, which will engender emotion, and that's a good thing, through being discipled, older ladies discipling the younger, older men discipling the younger, Titus 2, through faithful perseverance, through godly contentment, through the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, through the fellowship of the saints, these are the ordinary through which God promises to do the extraordinary. But beloved, the decreed body by which all this occurs so simply in our life, it cries out for reformation. The church in America must be reformed from her current state. The bride for which Christ died is being called back to a place of discernment, born out of love for Christ and a love for those around us. If the call to heed to reform is heeded, true revival in the individual lives of her people will come. God's children won't need to chase after the wind. Revival will be right here, right in the hearts of her people. Day by day, growing in the Lord. This is God's plan for revival. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are humbled and brought low by your word this morning. Lord, as you have guided us in all truth, as you look down us even in our error and even in our shallowness of ways and Lord our need to grow Lord you're so faithful and good and gentle and patient with us and we're so grateful Heavenly Father we ask that as this message goes out Lord not just to the hearts here but to those listening online Lord we ask that it would affect a mighty work in their life that it would change the trajectory in the thoughts of their life Lord, we stand here and we proclaim your goodness over everything. And we thank you for being with us in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.